Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the Fixed Income Conversation Corner podcast on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. For today, our conversation will deliver you insights into positioning within the asset class, this against the current macro backdrop, and in consideration of what 2023 might have in store, for the broader markets. Uh, Today, I am joined by Head of Taxable Fixed Income Strategy for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, Leslie Falconio. We're excited to welcome back as well Dwight Scott, the Global Head of Credit from Blackstone. So, Leslie, Dwight, great to be back with you both. Though, Leslie, I'll pass it over to you to lead today's conversation with Dwight. Welcome. Thank you, Dan. I really appreciate it. And, and Dwight, thanks so much for coming on this podcast. I I know you and I have spoken so many times um, over the past several years, particularly during times of really heightened market volatility. And, and in fact, I think the last time you and I had a conversation was around the August time period. And, and this was just off the heels of the Fed's first 75 basis point rate hike. And at that time, we had reached, in terms of interest rates, the high in tenure yield for the year at that time, which is around 3.5%. And you know, our conversation really was core and focused on the headwind of rising interest rates to fixed income overall performance in terms of the public and private market. And now that we're sort of here in this, you know, changing, you know, the mindset of the marketplace, if you will, and if we look at how the the market is expectation of the Fed, where now we're a little close to that terminal, whether or not it's going to be as low as the market is pricing in is still debatable. You know, we have sort of this really tremendous amount of inflow um, the first couple of weeks of of January 23 into these bond funds, because now it's expected that interest rates was once a headwind, was now turned to a tailwind. But there's still that uncertainty in terms of how the aggressive nature of the Fed will really impact real economy going forward. So I think our conversation today is is, is really going to be um, of, of tremendous importance in how we look at the next 12 months. So thank you for coming on. And I really just want to just, just k- you know, kick things off the way. Let's just start really sort of high level. And when we think about the high level outlook, we know that, you know, private sector grew tremendously in 22. As there were barriers to entry in, in credit, we know that high yield supply was down quite a bit. When you think about that, I mean, you think about really what the Fed is positioning or what the market believes the Fed is positioning today, you know, how do you foresee sort of the trend over the next 12 months? Thanks, Leslie. It's great to be here. And, it's, and, and you, you're right. It seems like you and I, maybe that maybe every time we're on together, we should know that there's going to be some major turn in the market um, that, that comes out of that. I'd say a couple of things. Uh, first of all, on the private, uh, the growth of private credit and the growth of the private markets more generally. Um, there was a great uh, report. I saw a chart uh, yesterday about the 60-40 portfolio allocation and how last year, of course, was the worst year in history for the 60-40 portfolio allocation. And the start of this year has been the best start of a year ever for the 60-40 portfolio. And it was it, the, the article or the, the, the write-up around it, I think, missed the point. The point of the 60-40 portfolio was to provide diversification and a highly correlated set of assets that trade up and down together does not provide correlation as far as I remember from my studying. So I think that explains a little bit. That one little data point explains uh, to some degree what's happened in the private markets. The market wants more diversification in their portfolios, and they haven't seen that in the public markets. So the private markets have begun to provide that. And, and just to, on the private credit side, just to remind everybody, you know, this was a market that was probably one in, inside of one and a half billion dollars of size 
back when we started, um, back then it was called GSO Capital, today is Blackstone Credit, back in 2005, it was a relatively small market dominated by high yield. Private credit was almost none of that. Today, it's probably a $4.5 billion market in the U.S., and, and, and private credit's about a third of it. So there's been tremendous growth in this asset class. It's not just the recent growth. It's, it's over a long period of time. I do think what, what private credit brings is it, it does allow for less volatility, uh, slightly higher, you know, you get an illiquidity premium, and all those things have been attractive in, in a period of time where, where returns have been um, uh, challenging uh, in, in, in fixed income, certainly for the last couple of years. So I think that's really driving um, capital to this market. It, one other important trend I just would, would highlight is, you know, we used to think of private credit as really a middle market strategy. Smaller companies providing capital to banks didn't want to provide as the banks kind of reacted to regulatory pressure. Today, private credit is much more expansive. It's much more competitive with the leveraged loan market or the high yield market doing larger transactions with larger companies, stronger businesses, better sectors. And, and I think it's evolved in that way as well to be um, a little more of a high quality bias portfolio compared to what it would have been even three to five years ago. Well, I mean, I mean, with that said, I mean, again, and sort of combining both this private and, and, and uh, public markets, you know, even though when we think about what the market is pricing in right now, there and, we, and, the, and the amount of spread compression in the public markets that we've seen, which has been tremendous in, in both in high yield and in loans, and with the expectation that you know we're going to have that the market expects the you know higher for longer to really not be that long, right? And the Fed to sort of shift policy. There is sort of developing, in a way, this potential wall of worry because, you know, potentially going down the road, given the fact there is this lag, um, that fundamentals could deteriorate. And and I'm just just in a sort of a two-part question, and please feel free to um, you know comment as, as as long as you deem necessary. But when we think about you know the, these walls of worry or the points of concern in terms of these really low defaults where we stand today, increasingly higher, the cost of debt rising. How does this sort of play out into your view of what you expect the performance to be over the next, you know, 12 or 18 months? I, I, great question. I'll try to answer and, and, and with, the, with the caveat that if I had a list of, if I had written down my wall of worry every day for my entire career, I think you would have found that most of my wall of worry didn't turn out to be true in the things I should have worried about. I wasn't worrying about. I was definitely not worried about the Ukraine invasion uh, by Russia. I was definitely not worried about COVID. You know, um, I wasn't at the time worried about the CDO implosion. So I, I, I worry about a lot of things, and, and quite often they don't turn out to be true. And, and I also just would highlight we were sitting down yesterday with a large institutional investor in the Midwest, and we were talking about the market and and – you know this, Leslie, because this is your world and you live it every day. We want to put analytics around where the market is sometimes when there is no analytical explanation. It is purely technical. And I think right now, especially the first part of 2023, has been a technical story. There's cash coming into the system. The cash is – there was already pretty high cash balances in much of the system. There's not a lot of new product coming in. And so that is pushing prices higher. It's not – that someone's sitting around and saying, hey, I, I really think that, that spreads should, in, you know, should tighten by 20 basis points in high yield. So there's a lot of technical pressure, and technical pressure does not necessarily coincide with fundamental opportunities. And, and so I, I do think that's what we're seeing now. If you go back and remember, we talked after 2020, that first 
week you know, or whatever it was, the week of the 15th of March or 16th of March through the end of that week of 2020 when we had COVID kicking in and loans traded from 89 to 76 in a week, which is which is a world record. Um, that was that was both technical and fundamental. You know, that you had both things going on. It turns out the fundamental was not as bad as we thought. But but that was a pressure coming from both. I'd say what's happening in the first part of this year is much more technically oriented. Um, and by the way, the wall of worry is not happening yet. We haven't seen it. Our portfolio, um, pri- our private credit portfolio in the third quarter, um, the underlying earnings of those companies, er- underlying EBITDA of those companies was up about 11 percent. And even year on year and even in the quarter to quarter comparison was still up 3 percent in that period. So we haven't seen it yet. If you look at high yield or leveraged loans, debt to EBITDA continues to come down through the third quarter. Interest coverage continues to go up through the third quarter. So all the things that we're worried about because we're paid to be forward looking, we haven't yet seen them kind of kick into the market um, as we sit here now. Now, I would happen to think I am more benign about the credit environment from a fundamental standpoint than probably UBS is. If you look at leveraged loans, for instance, um, you know, the market, the current amount of leveraged loans that trade below 70 cents is, is inside of 10%. Um, that would be that would imply a lower default rate than like UBS's forecast would be, which would be you know nine-ish percent kind of default rate at a peak. I don't think I, I, the reason I'm more benign is because I see it in the portfolio. I just don't see the the fall off yet. I do think the portfolios have better sector selection, loan to value. If you go back to 07, loan to value on LBOs was kind of two-thirds debt and one-third equity, and and in 2022 it was more like. 50-50 or even 60% equity and 40% uh, debt. So you, you do have some support for a, a more benign environment. And, and I would say we can't overestimate the 2021 effect. 2021 was such an active year. We had a trillion dollars worth of private equity deals done. We had $850 billion worth of leveraged loans issued. We had a whatever, 400 and some billion dollars worth of high yield. We cleaned up the portfolios. Between the 2020 downturn and the 2021 refinancing, we really did create a stronger portfolio as a whole, and that's why you see these the leverage ratios and stuff continue to um, look relatively attractive. So, I, I, while I believe that you you will need to be actively managing your portfolios and actively allocating, I, my wall of worry is probably a little less high than many others uh, about the credit markets. Do you think that there's something that people that investors should be paying attention to that they're not? Or is it the headline risk? Just, I mean, we constantly see these headlines, right? Which obviously we know the media wants to play off of. But just, do you think there's something that is either overly highlighted or something that could be cause cause some short-term volatility that investors should pay more attention to? I would point to a couple of things. First of all, there, there's this consistent messaging about some sort of systemic credit risk in the system. I, I do not see that in our portfolios. I do not see that in the markets where we invest. And I think as long as that noise is out there, it creates uncertainty, which frankly is probably good for investors who want to put money to work right now because things are, 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 you know, they react to that, that uncertainty and they're cheaper. So I would say the systemic conversation is, is, I just think incorrect and probably more of a reflection of what happened in 08, 09 than it is a reflection of what's happening in 2023. The, the other thing I would say, which is also about 0809, all of us want to look back to 0809. We want to think in our minds, is this 0809? And, and I've heard a number of people say, when is our Lehman moment? And, and I would say we've had our Lehman moment. You know, we've had 
significant value destruction in the fangs, for instance, over a trillion dollars. You've had significant value destruction in, in cryptocurrency by, by most measures, $2 trillion. You've had the SPAC market completely you know, disintegrate. So we have had our Lehman moments. They just didn't, you know, the market just kind of worked its way through them. And, and, and so I, I would say both of those things are supportive of a little bit more uh, positive outlook for 2023 than you might otherwise have. Um, uh, and so, so that's how I would answer that. You know, I think that that's that's great in the sense that when we think about you know as as with everything else, I mean, you know, with with this widening opportunity set that we that we've seen private, and to your point, you mentioned this you know earlier that we've you know we've come a long way from you know all being about you know the trend in equity multiples. I mean, there's just a really larger, much wider opportunity set within you know the private market now, and obviously, you know, selection could be very important, um, and and diversification for that matter. When you think about that, I want to ask you, like, how do you sort of see if when you add sort of this alpha versus beta to your portfolio? How do you take a how do you look at that in terms of either construction or diversification? You know, uh, let's see. There are a lot of bad things about getting older. One of the good things about getting older is you can kind of put things in context. Um, you, you know, had I not been a broke college student um, back in the early '90s when I was starting to work. And I had come to a UBS advisor uh, that they would have probably been talking to me about purely liquid markets. They would have been talking to me about equities and and loans and and, uh, bonds, probably that 60-40 portfolio, not the detailed analysis that you provide in your updates about different allocations and very specific um, targets. And that would have been fine because we had the falling interest rates that you and I have talked about in the past. We had the benefit over a, a long period of time of falling interest rates, which caused both stocks and bonds to be more valuable and cause equity multiples to increase over that period of time significantly and cause bond values to increase over that time as well. I think what's changed is we, we just aren't going to have that support of falling rates. We may have, you know, falling rates between where we start today and where we end up at the end of the year, but overall this big push of falling rates is not going to be there for us. And so the beta that we've been benefiting from in the markets unlikely to replicate the returns that we've had over that period of time. And so I think the market has begun to look and will continue to look for alpha creation. Private capital is going to be a place for that. Private equity buys companies, manages those companies actively to increase value, manages the uh, how to capitalize those companies more effectively than the public markets can do, and then sells them at the right time. So that brings alpha and has brought alpha for the last 20 years. And the same thing with private credit. We provide a service to issuers that is different than they can get from the banks, leading them to the public markets. Um, We can help these companies grow. We provide capital for them to grow. And so we add value there that allows us to be a little, uh, position ourselves a little differently than the public markets. So I think that is going to continue um, for at least for the foreseeable future, because I think beta returns are going to be under pressure and and the market's going to look for alpha. And back to my, my original comments, uh, you know, UBS advisors now have access to that, and therefore their clients have access to that, and and that's um, that's been an evolution in the market that's I think has been a very good evolution. Yeah, I completely agree. And let's let's and, and you know let's focus on, on particularly Blackstone for a second. When we think about the reason why I was asking that is, you know, as we know, whether it's a you know if you go to the public market, you select the high yield fund or a single security or the private credit, you know, selection obviously is very important, and not all. Not all funds or private credit funds are the same. So when we think about sort of like 
in terms of, you know, Blackstone and portfolio construction and particularly given whether it's, you know, your LTVs or stronger covenants or lower leverage, you know, how do you, if you can just give a sort of like a big picture outlook of how you, how you view that, that's the first question. And, and the second one, I would, I would be remiss if I didn't, you know, expand upon just the U.S. market and maybe take a look globally as well as what either opportunities or concerns do you see in that market? Let me start with our portfolio view, and, and, and maybe then we can talk about what we're seeing in the, in the broader markets. Uh, we have been on the credit side of Blackstone. Blackstone as a whole has been cautious about um, rates and inflation. We were probably pretty early in pointing out that the market was seeing more inflation than maybe the Fed was reacting to. Um, we've seen that be consistently true, though the Fed has certainly begun to catch up. And so we w- would be a little bit more than you are probably in the rates h- higher for longer category. We think that creates volatility in the market. The uncertainty around that creates volatility. And despite the fact that the volatility measures like the VIX wouldn't show the volatility that we see in the market, um, we, we have b- been relatively cautiously positioned for some time. You then transition, transition that to credit. That means our portfolios have been more inclined to senior secureds, you know, higher up in the capital structure to protect us if we're wrong. You know, in other words, if we go into a worse recession than we would expect or a more difficult um, rate environment, senior secured will protect you because, you, you know, you're higher up in the capital structure. Your valuation doesn't need to be as high to get repaid. We've been floating rate for some time. Um, you're, you're, you're beginning to react to that. I think that's appropriate. I think I'm seeing a lot of institutional investors start to think about allocating a little more to fixed income. But we like floating rate in, in these products because it protects you from that uncertainty. It does provide you um, a, a reactive return in a difficult market. We have moved to scale. We have said that we think scale companies uh, and scale funds provide a differentiating source of return. Better companies, better sponsors, better management teams, broader and more diverse asset base in those companies. So we like bigger companies. And then we've been very focused on growth-oriented business, growth-oriented sectors where you don't have a lot of capital intensity. We think capital intensity can be quite dangerous in credit, particularly in periods where you're moving into a weaker envi- economic environment. So we've been focused on software and healthcare and business services, um, places like that. We're not trying to play the cyclical recovery of energy, for instance, which is, has been a great story, but not, not what we think is a very defensive one. And that's played out for us. We had last year, 2022, we had one default across 300 and some names in our private um, uh, credit uh, portfolio. So we, that's how we would be positioning in this market uh, in, in our credit strategies. There's room for opportunistic strategies, and our, like our mezzanine strategy has, has been very active but even that strategy has been moving up the capital structure a little bit because um, because the return profile that that provides is sufficient to return hit the return profiles we think our clients want without taking a lot of junior risk. So on the global markets, I, I, I tell this story all the time. I, you know, I was I spent two weeks going around um, the Middle East and, and and Asia in November, and. You know, as you well know, this was at you know the tail end of a year where the dollars performed so well, and and other currencies have been much uh, weaker, and and there was just significant in interest in the U.S. markets broadly about the U.S. credit specifically, uh, strong interest. I, I do think there'll be capital formation to provide ca- more capital into those markets in 2023. Not as much as you would think. 
because a lot of those investors are fully allocated already and, and they have a little bit of a problem with some of the equity returns cause their, their allocations to credit to look higher than they would have looked at the beginning of 2022. But I would say there's lots of interest in the U.S. and, and you've heard our views on the U.S. economy. Um, I, the, nobody was interested in Europe. And, and, and I'd say that's a currency issue. It was a concern about what the recession was going to look like. It was a concern about commodity price impact on the economic viability of, of many companies in those markets. And, and that, that view meant that capital formation in Europe was going to be very difficult. Um, and I think that that was true. That is changing. So you saw, you mean, we all saw, you know, we're seeing the, the, the natural gas storage in, in Europe. Has yeah, absolutely. Much more resilient than we thought. Um, and, and frankly, the, the reopening of China, which I don't know that in November we were thinking that was going to be quite as aggressive as it has been, that helps the European markets, particularly Germany. So uh, there's been a little bit. I'd say we've been pretty negative and pretty, pretty negative. We've been pretty cautious on um, on the European markets, but my contrarian nature makes me like them right now because I do think back to this technical versus fundamental thing that we talked about earlier. The technical pressure on Europe will not will continue to be significant. You know, banks aren't putting as much capital to work. There's not as much private capital moving into that market. That will make for better deals, better pricing, you know, all those kind of things. So I, I'm, I mean, you know, I'm trying to really push us to look more at some of the opportunities over there, despite the fact that the market doesn't love it. And, and, and let's see, at the end of the day, uh, credit, I mean, leverage loan market looks okay to me. The high yield market looks okay to me. Um, we, we will have, you know, we, we're, we've been through this period where we've had almost no defaults in those markets. Even 2022 was what one and a half percent kind of default rate. That's well below trend. Uh, so there'll be an increase in defaults, but, but relative to where they're pricing today, it doesn't feel like that's, uh, that, that, that will have a significant impact on the overall return. So I feel pretty good about that. And I think direct lending will continue to grow because it, it's solving a problem for issuers and providing returns to, to investors. And I think that's what, what, what makes markets grow. Right. Well, listen, to it. I mean, as as always, you know, your insights are, are really are very valuable there, and I, I as I really do love our conversations. And you know, we've been like I said, we've been doing this, you know, for for quite some time now. And and our timing when we you and I choose to speak has always been pretty impeccable. So I, you know, I I just want to thank you again um, for you know taking the time. And you know, we have so it's going to be an interesting you know next particularly the next six months. Um, will be an interesting in terms of, you know, interest rates given the fact that we have, you know, yields have come in so quickly and that unknown about what potentially the Fed might actually do versus what the market is pricing in. But I think you and I would, would both agree that the, you know, the worst of the headwind in terms of, of fixed income in regards to interest rates should be behind us, assuming there isn't some sort of fat element that no one's really projecting. But, um, again, it's, it's really great to have you on. Thanks, Leslie. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer. 